Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 34. How many of you like pizza? Okay. How many of you like chocolate cake? Okay. Yeah, chocolate, chocolate cake pizza. Uh, there was a place down in Woodhaven that had dessert pizza. Those were pretty good. They closed after it was found that some of the employees were, um, let's just say they weren't being careful with the food and leave it at that. Um, anyways, how do you tell if pizza, cake, anything that you're going to eat is good? You've got to taste it. You can get an idea of something by looking at it. There's mold on the cheese or chunks in the milks, probably something to throw away. Um, but for things that look good, sometimes things look really good and then they're not. I think that what David is calling God's people to do in this psalm is more than just a uh, like one bite, you know? It's more of an ongoing experiencing of who God is and following Him by faith. Before we get to that, though, we have to, to deal with an issue that probably pops up at us at the very first uh, section of the psalm, which is, it says, A psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Turn with me, if you would, back to, I believe it's 1 Samuel 21. And we'll look at verse 10. The chapter immediately before is, of course, the one where David and Jonathan make promises to one another and David begins his flight from Saul's anger. Saul's been angry with David on a number of occasions. However, at this point, he is furious and ready to kill him, whether from the influence of the demon that is plaguing him or just from his own obstinate heart. He is determined in his heart David needs to die. So we come to 1 Samuel 21. David goes to the temple, eats of the consecrated bread. We come down to the end of the chapter, verse 10. David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Now, um, does anyone see the problem? If you look at the, the uh, superscription of the psalm, the title of the psalm. Okay. Okay, what else? Okay, but what, is there a disconnect between what the title of the psalm says and what we just read in 1 Samuel 21? 
Abimelech is not Achish, right? So, a couple of possibilities that we can uh, conclude from this. Uh, the reason I bring this up is because when we see something that's an apparent contradiction, if you open up a commentary, it may or may not mention this. One of the commentaries I looked at did sort of ignored the whole thing. But if you look and see what different ideas people have, you'll see several main ideas. One is that there are errors in the Bible. And if you start assuming there's errors in the Bible, then it really doesn't matter if it contradicts one thing here, there, wherever, because you can't trust it anyway. Obviously, that's not where we're coming from. Another um, possibility or thing to consider is whether the title is part of the original text. As we talked about, I think, at the beginning when we first started looking at the Psalms, these inscriptions at the top of the Psalms we would generally consider to be historically accurate, but they were most likely added sometime after the Psalm was originally authored. And so if it's something that was added after the Psalm was originally authored, then that would mean that it does not have the same level of authority as inspired scripture. So then that leads to two possibilities as far as how we understand this apparent contradiction. The first is that the person who added this inscription to the psalm saw a parallel between that situation and this one, but uh, made a, an error in putting the name Abimelech instead of the name Achish. Another possibility, and one that I would probably lean a little bit more toward, would be the idea that uh, Abimelech was potentially a kind of historical, not historical, um, royal title. We see this in, for example, the encounters of Abraham with more than one person named Abimelech in the land of Canaan, and the Philistines certainly were part of the land of Canaan, broadly speaking. The tension with that is, why would he use a potentially obscure royal title if he could have just said the name? Uh, and I think the bottom line would be that, first of all, we don't necessarily have to say that there is a contradiction. And second of all, if there is a contradiction, it does not undermine our view of the authority of Scripture to have potentially a copyist error in the humanly added title to a psalm. Okay, probably spent longer on that than I needed to, but I just wanted to lay that out for you in case you encounter it uh, in something that you looked at connected with the Psalms. The one point where I think this does affect is that sometimes we will look at a Psalm and we will read it in the context of the original situation that we think that it went along with. A Psalm of David when he fled from Gideon. Well, that's going to sort of color our interpretation of the Psalm. And I think this is perhaps a reminder for us that we should read the psalm on its own merits before we necessarily go back to the passage that it's associated with because we don't want to read things from this into that, particularly if there may not be that strong connection. So, let's read this psalm uh, standing alone and see what it says to us. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So we have here a call to praise that is similar to the calls to praise that we see in a number of the other psalms. 
I will bless the Lord. This blessing of the Lord is the idea of praising, um, ascribing worth to. We think of um, Jacob blessing his sons, Abraham blessing Isaac, these sorts of statements. When we bless God, we do not add anything to God's person. We merely recognize properly who he is and call others to do the same. We see that by the, the parallel phrase in verse 1, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Just a, a thing to think about. Is God's praise continually in your mouth? I know there's days for me when complaining is probably more readily in my mouth. Frustration may be more readily in my mouth. Is God's praise continually in your mouth? If you're a Christian, we should be ready to praise God. This can become superficial or trite. I got stopped by the red light when I really needed to, to get through it to be on time. Praise the Lord. I mean, I'm not saying you need to do something like that, but we should be ready to praise God for even the minor blessings of life. For that matter, all of the things in life, even if they're not things that we would normally think of thanking God for. Uh, it says in the book of James that trials work patience in us, and so perhaps there is an appropriate time for us to thank God for the trials that he brings into our lives and for the patience and faith that hopefully has increased as a result. Verse 2, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. It says in Jeremiah, don't boast in wisdom, strength, or riches, rather boast that you know God. There are many other things that we boast in. Uh, and most of them lead to pride. Boasting in the Lord leads us to humility because we realize it's not our strength but His that enables us to do what He calls us to do. And that's interesting in the second half that the humble will hear it and rejoice because if you are boasting in the Lord, it goes along with an attitude of humility instead of one of pride. And the psalmist calls us to magnify the Lord and exalt His name together. So this is not just an isolated thing that David is doing on his own, calling uh, himself to praise God, but he's calling all people, specifically the nation of Israel, but by extension all people to praise God. He then turns to a specific situation for which he praises God. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. As we look at these verses, there's an interesting thing that we notice. He switches back and forth between speaking of himself and speaking more broadly. He sought the Lord and received an answer and deliverance from all his fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. Why does David switch back and forth between speaking of himself and speaking of perhaps the congregation at large? The short answer would be we don't know for sure, but it's probably to draw this connection that there is an application to be made from God's working in our lives individual, individually and how that connects to other believers more broadly. If God delivers me, we should all rejoice. If God delivers you, we should all rejoice. If God 
cries and God hears, if, if uh, someone cries and God hears, then we should all recognize that God is with those who fear Him and rescues them. The angel of the Lord, we've seen a number of cases in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, in every case that I can think of at the moment, is a reference to Christ before He came to earth and took on human form. Christ rescues those who fear God. And that is encouraging for us both in the context of the Old Testament as well in the context of the New Testament where we consider Christ as our high priest, the one that goes before us in God, the one who helps us in our weakness through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and intercedes for us to God the Father. So there is a call to praise. There is a sort of a historical connection of an experience that is part of the basis for that call to praise. And then there is a more broad uh, admonition of what we should do both in regards to our praise of the Lord and in the way that we should live. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So, there is a call not just to observe God and His work from a distance, but to have a personal relationship with Him and see and know that He is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him probably calls to mind the words of Psalm 1, that there is a man who is blessed, who follows the way of righteousness and trust in the Lord, and the imagery of the tree planted by the water. And the idea of taking refuge in God, we've certainly seen in, seen in a number of these psalms. And so connected with that is this call not only to taste and see that the Lord is good, but also to fear Him. Why? For to those who fear Him there is no want. It's interesting that throughout Israel's history, one of their primary issues was they felt that they needed something and they were going to go seek it somewhere other than God, whether that be military protection, whether that be food, whether that be um, any number of other things that they wanted throughout their history. Think of them in the wilderness. What was their response? We should go back to Egypt because there was food there. When an army came up against them, what was their response? Well, if we hadn't dragged us out in the desert... Or if we had been allowed to build up chariots, or if we went down and um, if we went down and sought help from Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or any one of these nations, then we would have been delivered. In reality, however, who was it that they needed to turn to? They needed to turn to the Lord. For to those who fear him there is no one. He gives this illustration. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. There were times when there was no food for them to eat. In contrast, he is saying, those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. And we need to think about how we define good things, both in, both in terms of the historical context and in terms of, of, of what he's talking about. When I say in terms of the historical context, God made specific promises to the nation of Israel regarding their obedience or their disobedience. If you obey, 
you will have grain, you will have children, you will have wealth. If you disobey, you will have uh, famine, you will have barrenness, you will have poverty. There is not a direct correlation for us in the church in the New Testament era to those promises that God made to the nation of Israel. At the same time, the same God is at work in and among us today. So the same God who made manna rain down from heaven and watered a flood of rocks in the desert and wiped out armies that came against his people, can and does work in and among us today. But there is still a sense in which I think the Hebrews and other passages as well uh, shift our focus from an immediate earthly fulfillment of God's blessing than more toward a heavenly um, experience of all those things. But that doesn't mean that we don't experience God's blessing here and now. We just need to be careful not to pull a passage like this out of context. Related to that, sometimes we think any good thing is anything I could possibly imagine or want. Any good thing would probably in context be more anything that brings God's honor, is good for us, and is good for God's people as a whole. So uh, as much as any good thing in our minds might fall to the category of um, Ferraris or mansions or whatever else, that's really not what David has in view in this verse. He turns from a general call to experience who God is to specific wisdom instruction in verses 11 through 14 about what fearing the Lord looks like. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Those who fear Him will have no want. Taste and see that He is good. What does fearing Him look like? Who is the man who desires life and loves days that he may see good? Hopefully all of us. I mean, I don't think any of us would say, I want my life to be cut short, so let me live in a way that that will for sure take place. If you want to, generally speaking, live long and enjoy life, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. There is a lot of trouble that comes into our lives when we prioritize self-interest and deceit over the truth and when we prioritize doing what we want when it is evil instead of seeking peace and pursuing what God has called good. I mean, I think it's obvious that there are circumstances in which lying could very well get you killed or when seeking evil could very well bring you to harm. We saw that in our passage in Ecclesiastes uh, last Sunday night. There's the person who digs the pit, the person who breaks through the wall. And yes, accidents happen to the person that was working hard at his job in the rock quarry or as a lumberjack, but they much more often happen to the person who is seeking the evil of others. It doesn't mean people who do wrong always get caught. It doesn't mean justice is always immediately accomplished in this life, but it does mean, along the lines of the admonition for children to obey their parents, that if you choose to disobey God, your probability of danger and disaster goes up dramatically. So David says, fear God. If you, want to desire, if you desire life and want to see good days, don't lie. Leave alone evil. Seek peace and pursue it. 
And then he speaks more broadly of God's attitude toward people. Verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why should we fear the Lord? Because God hears the righteous. Why should we not live evil lives? Because God is opposed to the evil. It's interesting that God, it says, is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Humanly speaking, if we look in terms of who is most likely to succeed, it's not the people who are run down, plagued with difficulty, and sorrowful. They are not the most likely to succeed. And so it is easy for us to overlook and to perhaps even oppress them further. What happens if somebody starts picking on someone in a particular context? It's easy for everybody else to start doing it because, you know, you don't want to be the, one, the next one who gets picked on. And because everybody else is doing it, God, in contrast, rescues and helps such people. David was not a perfect man. The, the madness he feigned before Saul, whether it is connected with this psalm or not, was not a God-honoring tactic to seek deliverance. God didn't need him to figure out his own way out of that situation. He never should have fled down to the Philistines. That being said, when David was alone in the cave and wandered in the wilderness, God was with him. When David repented of his sin of adultery and murder and all of those sorts of things, even though it cost him the life of his baby with uh, Bathsheba, God forgave him and gave him uh, strength and restoration. And so God can likewise minister to us when we are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. There is a strong tie-in, I think, with this to the idea of repentance and humility. God does not look kindly upon those who are proud, who think that they have strength in themselves, who try to work out their own difficulties, who um, act as though they don't need Him. God is favorably disposed toward those who acknowledge their need of Him, who cry out to Him saying, I can't do this, please help me. God helps the humble. God casts down the proud. I think David is emphasizing these truths. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It's interesting that David does not say the righteous will be spared from all affliction because that might be our assumption based on what he said in verse 10. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. If God's not going to let us want for any good thing, then that means there will never be difficulties that come into our lives. And David says, no, there will be trouble, but God will deliver you. And I think we see from the testimony of the rest of Scripture, sometimes that deliverance comes in different forms. Sometimes it's from the trial. Sometimes it's through the trial. Sometimes it's not until we stand in God's presence, and yet God delivers and helps His people. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Turn over to John 19, if you would, briefly.
John 19 and verse 31 through 37. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. These are the ones hanging on the cross, including Jesus. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen is testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. That reference seems to be to verse 20. The Jewish perspective is interesting on this. They would deny that it has anything to do with Christ, and they would say that the New Testament is wrong to apply this verse to Christ because it clearly was talking only, to da- only about David, the psalmist, and so it should not be applied to Christ because they would deny that he is the Messiah. At least the one or two Jewish references that I read, I'm sure there's other perspectives out there. The common Christian perspective is sometimes to call this a fulfillment of prophecy. I think the answer lies somewhere in between. This is not a prophecy in the traditional sense, like the words of many of them anyways, of Daniel, of Jeremiah, of Hosea, Joel, and so on. This was not, this thing will happen to this person at this time. And yet there was a real and accurate sense in which the gospel writers applied Old Testament scripture to the life of Christ. How does that work out in this case? David is the ancestor of Christ. Christ is called the son of David. He's the final reigning king descended from David. All of these sorts of things. We know this from the testimony of scripture. So... What David experienced in his earthly life, there are parallels to what Christ experienced in his earthly life. And there is a sense in which things that sometimes David only spoke of figuratively sometimes actually happen in the life of Christ. And in the sense of the context of this, the Lord delivers him out of all of his afflictions. Verse 20, he keeps all of his bones Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and not one of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. When Christ was buried and Christ was raised, he was not condemned. Rather, he was vindicated and shown to be right. He was not kept in the power of death. He was delivered from it because he is God. And while I would not call this a prophecy, I would highlight the very close parallel between what David said, speaking of his own experience, and perhaps speaking better than, we have to be careful here, speaking better than he could entirely comprehend in the sense that Christ, his ultimate descendant, would experience in his own life the sorts of words and things that David described in his own writing. I think we see a similar thing in Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. 
They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There is no recorded incident in which this actually happened in the life of David. And we don't know what God revealed to David of what would happen to Christ. But we do know that there is clearly a parallel between the words of David and the life of Christ. And this should serve to highlight for us not some sort of of, uh, spooky mysticism, not some sort of poor hermeneutic where we look at passages and pull them out of context and say, well, this is tied to this, is tied to this, when there is no basis for it, but rather instead to see how in the same way that God cared for David, God cared even in a greater way for Christ. And by application, if God cared for David and God cared for Christ, who is the first fruits of those who will be raised from the dead, of the first to conquer death and sin, how much more confident should we be that he will do the same in our lives? And so the Psalms were written long ago. But they're not disconnected from our daily experience. So do you know God well enough to confidently say that He is good? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Part of this is being the right sort of person. Do you lie? Do you tolerate or seek after evil? Do you find joy in conflict? Or do you speak the truth, do good, and seek peace? Which is not all that different from what God says in Micah. What does he require of you, O man, but to do justly and to walk humbly, and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And we say, well, but we don't live by works. But that is the life that God calls us to. Obviously, we can't do it until we trust Christ and God gives us new life and enables us with His strength and all those sorts of things. I get that, but this is the sort of life that God calls us to. But you can't do it apart from tasting and seeing that God is good. You can't live a life that's acceptable to God. And so we ought to praise God because He hears and delivers the righteous, but that should in turn also cause us not to you know, sing a song of praise to God and then go back to sinning, it should cause us to live in a way that honors the God who is good. Let's go now to our time of prayer.